0: Hello, and welcome back to the Crow's Nest podcast. In today's episode, I'll be chatting with author Sharm Hutton about her Angel Drake Mysteries series and her most recent series of books, The Adventures of Philo Kane, a young adult series set in a fantasy world. along Sharon, and thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh thanks for inviting me,
1: very excited to be here.
0: <laughs> so I just thought a good starting place would be to kind of go right back and, and just talk a bit about your background and what you did before writing because I know like a lot of authors you haven't always been writing from day one and I thought it'd mm-hmm. be a good way for us to just get to know where you started and, and where you've come from.
1: Sure okay, Um. Well, yeah, writing wasn't my job, as you say, for, um, you know, for the most part. I used to work in marketing and um, I suppose there was a creative side to that, um, but really no more than copywriting. And it wasn't until I actually gave up my job to become a mum and stayed at home that um, writing really became something that I wanted to do. I suppose, um, you know, I was used to thinking and being busy all day long with my with my with my brain I suppose and then when I found myself at home that side of you you know there's not much of a challenge you know looking after babies is obviously challenging in its own way but it doesn't have that kind of intellectual side to it so I started making up um, a story in my head over nappy changes and washing up and you know that sort of that sort of thing and it took me a really long time actually to come up with the first story Um, it took seven years to write it's killing Jerry, which is you know heck a heck long time, and um, I think that uh, I wasn't really dedicating that much time to it every day. You know, it was it was a few hours, a few minutes even sometimes, and uh, yeah, it wasn't until I actually got the thing down on paper, you know, I, you know probably after six years, and then got that sent away for a developmental edit that I really started to learn about the writing process because. There's so much to it that I just had no idea was there. Um, you know that, that having a professional look at it, that you know it was a little bit shocking. The comments that came back because obviously I'd worked on it for so long, but there were so many things that weren't um, what they should be. I hadn't thought hadn't understand, hadn't understood character development. Lots of things about it that I just didn't because I was just coming from it from nowhere. But that was. In equal part a, a really horrible experience because I just went, Oh my god, it's actually terrible. Um, but a really great experience because I suddenly realized there was so much to learn and then I started teaching myself um, you know, about the craft and about, you know, writing techniques and what was required for a satisfying story. So that's when the bug really got me. I, I think, think that's a
0: really interesting was... point because I think you kind of go back say 20 plus years the only route to market really was to be picked up by a big mainstream publisher have an agent to represent you and mm. you'd get to market that way whereas obviously mm. now um things like kindle direct publishing means literally anyone can write a book and yeah. i've kind of learned through my time reviewing that that is definitely the case that quite often people will write a book with no knowledge of what really goes into it. And it can show mm-hmm. at times. Yeah. You know, there, there's, I think for some, there's this kind of belief that hit spell checking word is more than enough to, to firm up a good story, but yeah. that doesn't replace someone checking it, looking for plot holes, looking for that moment. You've inadvertently named a character, something different, <laughs> yeah. um, all these little <laughs> things. And I, I definitely feel like, the world's shifted a lot and now Mm. it's so much easier for anyone to write a book and put a book out there but that doesn't necessarily mean that they they should because as you say there's there's that learning (laughs) yeah Yeah, and there's that learning like I I kind of write my wrote my first draft and I sent it to a few author friends and Mm. I kind of I don't know naively thought oh you know being friends this will be an easy run there won't be too much bad there and they were Mm. pretty brutal themselves and yeah. they still weren't as brutal as a copy editor was um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and similar to you there are little things where there's kind of sort of like oh at this point the character seems a bit bland and flat and there's a better way of delivering this scene or you mm-hmm. know it just all these things that you suddenly sit there and go wow if I want to make a go of this it's not just something you can do on a casual whim no, you I, actually have to I, want to do it and work at it
1: yeah, absolutely. I know that a lot of people are um, pansters rather than plotters, um, but I don't think that I could ever write in that way because I don't think that I could hold enough in my head to have all the elements of plot and character arc, um, you know, character development, to hold all that, to make it a satisfying story so you know, you know that you're hitting the marks at the right time. Um, I just don't know how people do that. And I think that is something that I did learn from that experience, that you have to write um, the stories that the readers in your genre are expecting as well. You know, that was the other thing. That first book had no pigeonhole that I could put it in. And I didn't realise how important that was until I tried to find an audience for it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. Um, So, you know, from that point, I thought, okay what's what's closest to what it is that I'm writing what what does this need to be what's the what's the genre here and that's where I went on to cozy mystery because I felt like that first book it was a mystery it was a murder mystery, but it had humor in it. it had that kind of slight kind of sitcom feel to it um but it needed to be specifically something you know so that's why I kind of went into the the next book was cozy mystery, and that was i moved on to angel drake i don't know if you ever met angel drake did you, did you? i know you read jerry
0: yeah i don't think i have actually um but it certainly sounds like my street because i've i've read quite a few cozy mystery um cozy yeah. crime um and, and i think that's that's definitely something that came through as you say with um jerry that there was that yes it was a murder mystery but there's also that sort of sitcom comedic element there um mm which i guess yeah it, it's tough isn't it because when you start out writing you kind of almost think well i'm doing this for me yes but if you're going to make a go of it there's got to be an element of it being for someone else as well and it's yeah. kind of finding that that fine balance because i've i've often talked before about the sort of sh- books you see on the the shelf end in the supermarkets that all have mm. very similar cover designs the blurbs yeah. all sound very similar
1: and, and it's kind of very formulaic.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's very formulaic. It, it's mass market. It's what people mm. will happily spend sort of five ten pound on. Yeah, really popular at, stuff. At a go. Um, and that's fantastic. There's you know there's authors that have made a killing out of that. There's I think James Patterson's a good one for that. With a lot of his books kind of fit that bill, where although mm. they're a series, they all follow a similar vein, and mm. they're really great reads. But at the same time, they're not necessarily what I want to write. So it's kind of finding that balance between engaging the reader, but also satisfying my need to tell the story that I have and I want to tell.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. That's the challenge, isn't it? That is the challenge. I would agree.
0: It is. So since you've introduced Angel Drake, I think it'd be a good time for us to chat a little bit about that, especially as I haven't yet come across that series so much so it'd be nice to learn a little bit more about that
1: yeah okay um well i suppose i drew a little bit from my other reading loves which i really have enjoyed um stephanie plum and janet ivanovich i don't know if you familiar with them at all um and but the there's a, yeah it's a big long series the stephanie plum series and it's it's of, um, well, obviously but it is american series um, the characters are, you know, set in America. And so there's there's that edge to it. And I really, really enjoyed it. She's a bounty hunter in that story. And I liked the idea of that kind of sassy, strong female character who is a real try-hard person. And I thought I could definitely mould my writing style to suit a character like that. And I wanted to have that kind of fun, slightly dangerous, um, mystery-solving world and um actually it doesn't sound dangerous at all because i put her into an antique shop in cotswolds <laughs> dangerous does it but um she gets involved with a robbery and um you know she has to try and solve it because it's affecting her livelihood so i don't want to tell the whole story because you know somebody might want to read it sometime um so she's really fun and she's really brave but she makes bad choices And I had um, I have a really good feeling for her. She's got a friend who's an old lady, who's somebody in the in the village who's very suspicious of her when she arrives. And they make this kind of double act. So her name is Hester Hester Anzac, and she's very kind of you know she's checking Angel out and criticizing her, and but she gets involved and she's helpful in the end. And I could really see a good relationship between them going into a series. And them going on lots of adventures together. Um, and there's a bit of romance in there as well. There's a romantic edge to it. So there's a there's a fellow antique dealer who they're sort of sort of competing um, for the best, you know, the best deals and um customers, and what have you. And there's also a um a country gent, sort of a lord of the manor kind of person who is interested in angel as well. So there's this kind of triangle, it's not a romance as such but there's a, a romantic element to it, which I think is quite common in um, the cosy mystery genre. So yeah, so that's kind of her world. And they live in um, a village in the Cotswolds, which I called Poop Wallop. Um, just, it's quite, it's quite funny. It was actually my nickname when I was a child. So um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so yeah, that's that's Angel. That's brilliant, and I think that sounds a,
0: a really interesting series to actually um, take a look at. Um, you mentioned there the sort of element of romance, which mm. I do think a lot of people almost stereotype cozy as a genre that goes hand in hand with romance. Um, mm. Now, obviously, I can't speak for for the Angel Drake series, but the ones I've experienced, it doesn't seem like it's quite as big a thing as people would assume um, would would you agree with that or does it feel feel like it forms a central plot within your Angel Drake series?
1: I think that cozy mysteries are divided up again into lots of sub-genres. Um, there's a lot of witch cosies so they've got this whole paranormal edge to it. There are a lot of them that involve um animals who are, you know, they're they're the heroes. I'm sorry, my thing keeps beeping. Um, <laughs> Um, so they have that side to it I think some cozy mysteries are much more serious and maybe a little bit more um, a a little bit more sort of policey if that's the right you know it's not the right term but you know what I mean I think essentially a cozy mystery is that it's a finite group of people who are your suspects and for me it also has to be something which has an element of lightheartedness to it. So there's no horrible gore, you know, there's no kind of psychological, you know, you're not terrified at any point, but it's something that's quite lighthearted. And I suppose, for me, romance goes hand in hand with that. because um, I think it just gives opportunities for, you know, embarrassment, you know, a bit of cringe and, you know, perhaps, a, you know, a, a different kind of aim Um, competition you know it just gives you lots of extra angles really so it's like an extra so it's a subplot for Angel you know something that's happening in the background that people are interested in her um or you know against her fighting against her so this this kind of push pull thing happening so yeah yeah I think there are a lot that have much more romance to it um but I think like um, L.J. Ross, I think hers would be described as Cozy Mysteries. and I don't think, would you agree with me on that? I don't know.
0: Uh, it sounds right. I haven't experienced too much of of Ross's work, but um, one I have is is another fellow independent author. I don't know if you know of him, Richard Dee. Um I'm not he, really I know that. He writes the Andorra Pet series of books and they're kind of, cozy crime in space so he, he's got a background oh, right, in actually. in sci-fi and steampunk as well um mm. so he's kind of melded the whole cozy crime with a bit of sci-fi it often takes place on a space station or or something yeah. like that and similar to like you say that romance features um the reason she's left earth is failed romance um yeah. and whilst she's on the space station she finds new romance so It's there, Mm -hmm. but it's not kind of round down your throat like if you picked up a Mills and Boone novel and you'd be like, right, Mm -hmm. well, this is all going to be about the emotion and the romance. It's kind of it is like you say, it's just another thing that kind of, I guess, to a degree in a cozy genre, it throws another spanner in the works for the protagonist. It's just another hurdle that they have to overcome with everything else especially if it's cozy crime you know they're trying to uncover a crime protect their interests and throw a romantic interest in there just for good measure yeah Um, Yeah. only adds to the opportunity for for some real laughs in there
1: yeah yeah absolutely and it does feel like it completes the picture of a story as well because they're you know I'm not saying that every story should have an element of romance in it but there's always something about characters and their relationships with our other characters so it almost feels unnatural that there shouldn't be a little element of it somewhere in a story to me it's, it's, you know it's it's people isn't it I'd agree I think
0: the minute you have a story that involves humans it would be inhuman not to have emotion in there um yes. it's it's going to happen uh, it happens yeah. in life so it would almost feel very unrealistic to have a book that's completely devoid of that in any way, shape, or form.
1: Yeah. Um, I think, you know, your characters have to be people, don't they? And I, yeah, and I do I, like stories that are led by character rather than necessarily by action. So I think that's, that's definitely the way that I write as well. It's all about, you know, forming characters and seeing what they might do next and that helps.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's certainly personally something I struggled with writing. my first book because I obviously wanted the characters to be human and emotional but romance just is not a genre I read I go near um, and I don't profess to have any inkling how to try and start writing that level of emotional detail but Mm. with my two lead characters being so close from such a young age I knew there was kind of an element that there was going to be a closeness to them and mm. that, that was going to lead to something. And I kind of decided the best approach was kind of to to steer the narrative in a way that shows something's going to happen. And then mm. kind of allow the reader to to decide what has happened between that and the next point of the book. Exactly. Yeah. It's just yeah. the little subtleties like one character leading another off into the room and shutting the door and the chapter yeah. ends. That's it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Most people can can fill in the blanks for themselves that something yeah. has occurred between those two in a private setting. And you
1: don't you don't need to fill all that in because a lot of readers, you know, that's not the genre they've chosen. They've chosen your book because they enjoy a steampunk adventure. And whilst they want to, um, you know, understand that the characters are full and rounded, they're not interested in reading about a lovey-dovey scene. They, they don't want that. They just want to know that the adventure continues. And that's, they've got those people rounded in their head now because they've you know, gone off behind that closed door and actually done. You know, I think it's what's appropriate, isn't it, for
0: the story? It is. And I think I've read some books where clearly the author feels that that kind of thing needs to be spelled out a lot more to the reader. And it mm. almost becomes a, an over-gratuitous scene that's over-described, almost in that desperate need to make sure the reader understands every nuance of what's gone on. Yeah. But it becomes a point where it's almost goes back through that that boundary of it's realistic to assume these characters have got together into Mm. a realm of okay this is now really cringing cringing now (laughs) it's very cringing at times and it's kind of finding that balance I imagine obviously in erotic fiction there's a need for that I imagine to an extent Mm. in romance there is a need maybe not to the same extent and same degree but there is a need for a bit more detail than just they went off through the door and shut it behind them.
1: It's meeting your reader's reader's expectations, isn't it? That's, that's it. You, you know, you, you choose and read a particular genre because you enjoy what happens in that genre. And if you want to read about, you know, people's close relationships, then you're going to read romance. You know, it's, it's a different thing. If you want to read about, you know, gangland, you know, activities, then you're going to read, you know, something else. So it's, you know, it's all about fitting genre.
0: No. Yeah, exactly. It's like you wouldn't necessarily open, I don't know, a Stephen King and fully expect to have a massive romantic element in there. That that would mm. shock. So, yeah, you'd probably be a bit like disappointed, saying, to be
1: honest, wouldn't
0: you? It, Just, um, personally, yeah, because as yeah. you say, you know, in the same way as in Cozy, you don't expect gore and blood and graphic depiction. Mm. If Stephen King didn't, I don't know, for example, in Misery, if he didn't graphically explain... The, the scene with the removal of the foot. Yeah. He, oh, God. He'd be disappointed. Well, you would. You would, because that's because what you, you want, want that, that story for. Mm, absolutely. It's like, it's almost, I watched the film just recently and I, I was almost disappointed when I realised they chose to only break the ankle. And I thought, oh, that's not actually quite as graphic as it is in the book. But ah,
1: see, I haven't that, read the book, so I didn't know that. But, um... Yeah, he,
0: he takes it to a, a whole different level there. That, that's... It, it's a yeah. weird one is it because considering all the stuff he's done the paranormal the horror it's the mm. human ones that are the most cringy at times that really hit you because I mean misery I know I know we've kind of gone down a rabbit hole here now but um, misery's kind <laughs> of there's nothing supernatural there at all it's no. entirely human and it's just that human capacity for for when mental health breaks down and and what can go wrong and yeah it's like I mean it's bad enough watching I think Kathy Bates is incredible in that film the way she just Mm -hmm. so nonchalantly it's like oh you've been a bad boy and, and breaks his ankle with the sledgehammer as if it's the perfectly rational thing to do yeah yeah completely
1: normal behavior oh my
0: god yeah yeah great so I think the obvious point to move into now would be where your work is at the moment which is some of my favorite books at the moment the uh fantastic philo Kane series yes so (laughs) i think a good starting point would just be for you to introduce that series to us and just give us a little summary of of who he is
1: yeah lovely thank you um i suppose moving from angel to philo i suppose that's something to kind of explain um I had the next angel all planned out, and I was ready to to write it when the you know the the story idea for Philo came sort of came to me, and it was almost like, um, you know, a, a full series idea straight away. But I thought, okay, I've got this character arc for a um a young boy who lives in a magical circus, which I know is so random as to go off from cozy, but um and He should be in the family business, but he just can't do it. He just can't do that magic. And it's not working for him at all. And he gets himself into a situation where he has to earn his place at the magical circus. He has to be able to pay his way. He has to have a talent. And if he doesn't um, produce that, he's out. And not only is he out, but his family's gonna follow him because they're not gonna allow him to go out into the dangerous world beyond that magical circus um on his own. So he's suddenly got this kind of jeopardy where he's not only looking out for himself, but he's looking out for um his family and his, his younger sister, and you know, there's suddenly a lot on his young shoulders. So um the first story um is called Philo Kane and the Circus Wonder. And that's about him um, and his experiences there. And it's really about introducing the reader to that world. And I wanted to try and paint it in the most brilliant, magical, jewel bright way that I possibly could, because I wanted um readers to kind of be absorbed in that world so that I could then go on and tell them more stories from that world and what's going to happen to him. So I've got a, a very loose skeleton that's that's got seven books in it. Um, I've written two of those. I'm writing the third at the moment. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for it. And I think that when I was wanted to write the second Angel Drake, I felt like I was just kind of reinventing the wheel a little bit. So I'd already written a story for her. I kind of felt like oh, I'm just going to have to do the same thing again, but slightly different. But with philo i feel like i've only told the first chapter and it doesn't feel like reinventing the wheel to write the next book because i know that i'm here you know and i'm you know i've taken a step up and now i'm on this level and we're going to be going over there and i know um you know where we're heading ultimately so it feels like a really long story that i'm just getting into now so it's keeping me going so i think writing a series can potentially be a bit difficult, can not it? Because you each time you think, "Oh, what am I going to do now? You know, what, what my character is going to do next?" And I think that's a that's a bit of a challenge, probably. So, yeah, it, yeah, it it definitely it's
0: a challenge because I feel when I was writing my book, I kind of was getting towards a point where I knew that the kind of the core adventure was tying up, mm. but there were ideas there for for something more but not that I could comfortably tell in kind of the page space that realistically I had left. So that kind of set in motion the the need to sit down and really think about what a book two might look like. Mm. And that kind of then did the same again, that there's ideas there that don't really fit the thread of the story this time, but would fit as a a further continuance yet again. Yeah. so, yeah, I, I suspect that could end up being three books at the moment. We'll see where that goes. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: But yeah, sort I think of we following... all have our own process, don't we, of mm. coming up to those tales.
0: Yeah, and mm. um, it's kind of interesting reading through Violet Ken, because having read the, the two that are out, it's definitely clear there's that narrative of, as you as you mentioned, sort of finding his way, the sort of book one is that, real realisation that what he thought he was born to do is not really his vocation mm. but also there's that element of where he's kind of a sort of pre-teen early teen boy that's kind of he's trying to understand himself anyway mm. without adding in the fact that he's also got this desperate fear in him now that he must understand what he's going to achieve um, yes. and what his his Uh, his vocation is going to be which I think really sets you up for a fantastic potential series going forward.
1: Great I hope so (laughs) I hope so yeah that's the idea I mean it's really it's a it's a coming of age story and I think I've struggled with which age group he's going to fall into because it's initially I felt like it was a middle grade story because um, much like my taste in films, and I suppose with the cozy as well, I don't really like gratuitous violence. I don't really want a lot of swearing and things in my stories. I don't need anything explicit really happening. I just want a really good story um, with a bit of humor and a bit of humanity and some adventure and danger and you know all those things. And that that does feel, because of the nature of that, like potentially a middle grade story. But then the elements that I'm talking about in there as well, it's kind of pushing it into an older age group so it's I kind of feel like really I need to push it into YA really with the way that I'm presenting it um because you know in that first story he's helping his friend who's really battling with addiction you know and that's quite a you know that's quite a a big subject for a middle grade book you know and and he's also struggling to come to terms with um the death of his mother so you know there's there's some you know, there's some quite big stuff in there for him to be dealing with and, and moving forward. Um, so, yeah. So okay. you
0: mentioned just there that with Philo Kane, obviously you started out kind of thinking it was mid-grade as a reading level, mm-hmm. um, but have kind of come to now think it's it's YA. So would you say your intent was always for it to be mid-grade or was that just how you kind of perceived it as you were writing it?
1: I suppose my intention was for it to be um, a story which was consumable by anybody. I suppose that's the thing. I didn't want to put limitations on it with um, you know, inappropriate content, I suppose. But the storylines are quite mature. So I think that, um, funnily enough, I think that middle grade has a kind of dual audience. I think it has that, what you would expect as a you know younger from younger readers sort of those you know breaking into the teenage years but also i think that there is an age group of women kind of my age <laughs> the old, older sort of you know middle aged ladies who like to read those kind of stories as well because when i've gone searching for fans on you know facebook and looking for middle grade readers groups it does seem that there are a lot of ladies who like to read these things as well and I think that more than men as well in that kind of um, in the older age groups. And I think it's probably to do with, um, you know, not not really wanting the violence. You know, it's a bit kind of stereotypical of me to say it. But I think, you know, men prefer a shoot up, you know, quite often that, you know, that ladies might not want to read. And I think that kind of slightly more, you know, gentle um, story appeals to different people um but yeah because because the um the storylines are quite complex and they're quite mature actually um you know and i'm so far i've been talking about addiction and death (laughs) and um you know in the second book i'm i'm talking about um you know environmental impact almost you know how how people are abusing the natural world and um you know what how you should be aware of that um, you know, I think there are issues beyond just, it's not just the kids, it's not a, just a little kid's story, you know, so that it's not something necessarily that somebody, you know, under 10 really is going to appreciate for all its complexities. So, yes, I think that's, you know, and also I think that um, children are much older mentally now than they once were. And I think that they probably aspire to um, an, an older story. And I think you can see it in book covers as well, that they've got that different feel to them. And I think the way I pitched Philo with his cover, that first cover, I um I employed um, a, an illustrator who made, and I loved that cover. I don't know, do you remember? I don't. Which one did you get when you saw it first of all? Was it a think... cartoony one?
0: I think it was, yeah. I think it was that that very early original one. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I do
0: love what you kind of the route you've gone now, which gives them a nice kind of yeah. mid, Just that, that mid-age bit, dynamic. It? But it yeah. kind of, I guess to an extent, and I guess this comes through given that we're both admitted fans of, of the Harry Potter series, in yes. that kind of on the face of it, that was always billed as the, sort of the next great, fantasy but targeted at children Mm. but really I mean obviously by the time you get to to book seven things have gotten beyond dark they are yes I I mean I I don't think it's a spoiler to say at this point you know the the whole Fred and George Weasley situation in book seven is
1: yeah
0: as a 36 year old that's pretty dark even now Um, yeah and watching it back in the films just seeing that scene it, it hits you and you think this this is a series aimed at kids?
1: Yeah. Now, some, when, really, when I was sort of six really,
0: and seven, I would never yeah. have been reading necessarily something with that level of a dark theme to it. But mm. now that's that's just normal. That's deemed acceptable.
1: Yeah, and I think the Potter series, you know, it, that's really interesting because the first book, um, and the way that's the way that it's written, actually the first book as well, is very much aimed at a younger reader. Um, and then, as it goes on, it it does become written in a much older way as you progress through the series. And it's not just the actual themes. I think with Potter, you know, beloved characters die. Um, you know, without wanting to sport too much. I'm sure does everyone know the story of Potter by now, surely, maybe. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and and it's horrific. And you know, I think Sirius is the the first terrible blow isn't it and I just even then I thought oh my god is this, is this where this is going oh no you know and and but it's such a good story that you just get sucked along with it don't you and I think that they do become more young adult they probably start middle grade and become young adult as as they work towards the end I think there's definitely a progression with the plot. it definitely
0: is and mm. I think maybe more so than the books because I I kind of remember reading them from when they first came out, and they had that very cartoony, everything's wonderful and magical and light vibe to the cover. Um, yeah. And then when you watch the films, I think Warner Brothers have been very clever in setting the tone of the film before yeah. the film starts where they show you the studio exactly that yeah yeah and I don't know how many people pick up on it but it's that like you know early on it's light and airy and everything's wonderful and by the end it's sort of dark with that dark bluish green tone and the rust coming in on the logo and there's an Mm. element of ominous vibes coming off of it which really sets the tone Mm. um so I, I definitely sort of having read them again as an adult, I often sit there and reflect on them and go, how were these ever marketed at kids? Because when I was a kid, I would not have been, certainly not been reading those last few books because mm. it's what from Goblet of Fire onwards, when you really start seeing, yeah, well, I mean, Prisoner of Azkaban's the first element, you start seeing some nightmarish stuff, but it mm. really it's goes not too down bad, down. that one, is it? I think it's the Dementors are, are the worst bit probably, but once you get to... Mm. It's kind of goblet of fire onwards it really starts getting quite dark Um yeah. and it's so there's the element of of death and it's it isn't just confined to deserve yeah. deserving adults or or nasty people yeah um, you know it becomes chaotic, innocent, exactly it's innocent people are caught up and it, mm. it's really interesting whereas you kind of sort of say that you've kind of gone with a ya route more with philo now because it deals with Mm. some dark things but I think I guess you've been clever in that you've introduced them but not labored on them in the same way that Potter does maybe like Mm -hmm. yes there is the element of death and that is clearly an undercurrent through certainly through the first two books and I'm about halfway through the prequel and it's it's there it's it's not it's not delved into any depth really there's Mm -hmm. no sort of graphic oh you know he remembers his mum on her deathbed or anything graphic and and troubling but there's this awareness that the world for these children has changed because of the loss of their mother and the position their father is in trying to make up for that loss and Mm -hmm. whilst not necessarily as dark as out and out death and murder It's Mm. a complex emotion to deal with because a lot of young children probably won't have experienced that kind of scenario.
1: Yeah. Uh, And I'm I'm hoping to represent that there's, you know, potentially light at the end of the tunnel there if you can, you know, try to deal with things. But that's, you know, something that I wanted to put across in Circus of Wonder because Philo is constantly trying to bring his mother back in that first story. And that is his kind of downfall. That he's, yeah. he's
0: so fixated that he can't actually realise his potential
1: yeah, because he's trying yeah. to
0: fulfil a, a perceived idea rather than what he should be doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So that's his, you know, he has a learning curve and he's going to have a learning curve in every book. And, yeah, you know, I've been specifically vague about what's happened in the past because I am going to go there in the future. So, you know, there's there's a tale to tell, but I don't want to tell it straight away. Exactly. And I think
0: that's what makes them enjoyable because although, as you say, you market them at a YA market, I think that's a much wider genre in terms of its readership than than maybe the mid-grade might have been, because there's mm. enough about it that adults can read it and enjoy it and will understand and get those more complex themes. Mm. where a child will just enjoy this wonderful circus setting yeah
1: enjoy it that's, on a different
0: level exactly uh, and to mm. them like these these dark characters um oh, i'm trying to think of the name now the one in the first book that you often see the the man in all the black robes the crow man the crow man that's what i should have remembered yes. that shouldn't i really the <laughs> you, should. And, in the name. Um, you know concrete. and that's kind of all creepy villainous nasty man but yeah it's not too terrifying for a child whereas mm. for an adult we can kind of read between the lines of what you've written and see that there's clearly a lot more going on yeah. And that just kind of carries through you know between his desperation to do well when he he's tries his hand with the trapeze which is again yeah. it, it's quite a terrifying experience yeah. and for kids yeah. that'll be wow this is fun and fascinating yeah. for adults yeah. reading it it's like you, you can feel the desperation coming yeah, from him. It's scary,
1: but it's really kind of a bit funny actually as well. You kind of I kind of vicariously enjoyed his terror when I was when I was writing it.
0: It was because yeah. there were moments reading it where you can kind of feel your heart rate go up a bit, where you're like, "Oh, just don't fall, just oh just no, don't let go, nail it, just do it right." <laughs> uh, and you yeah. could feel his tension and mm. kind of you know, moving into the, the second book, you kind of got that where they were sitting on the cliff edge and, yeah. and you could again. And I thought that was a nice little touch point that kind of brings back the, even at sort of the, the pre-teen, early teen age stage of his life, he's still got some of those childhood fears left in him
1: Yeah, and they, they yeah. still
0: affect him. And whether it be that scene or, or not to spoil anything, but, but dealing with some of the, the magical creatures that he has to, kind of pull his boots up and learn that he's if he's going to succeed he's going to have to face them and work with them yeah you know it, it just kind of it makes them that much more accessible because for an adult you can kind of get that feel of you know sometimes we still suffer these fears that we've had since childhood um as an adult and yet for children there is that element of yes things are scary but sometimes they're not as scary as we make them
1: to be i don't know i'm so pleased that you picked up on that in that scene and i'd actually kind of forgotten about that bit but yeah that is a that is a part where you know philo is afraid of heights which is why you know training as a trapeze artist really was always going to be doomed to failure um but when he has to go and face those heights again in the second book that whole scene was really about recognizing that yes he is scared of it but you can't be brave if you're not scared in the first place. So that's him kind of demonstrating that bravery and that, you know, he's learning. I wanted to show that he's picking up skills along the way. He's learning how to deal with it.
0: Yeah. And that really came through for me because it was like, to to some extent, it's almost a throwaway scene that the book wouldn't be necessarily worse if it wasn't there, but it just mm. kind of, again, it kind of ties back it kind of reminds you that any failure in book one isn't necessarily down to a lack of skill or trying but that there was Mm. also an inherent fear and that what he did achieve was actually that much greater for it and it's Mm. that bit where he kind of has the the moment with his brother and he has that realization of how terrified they used to be of coming to this cliff edge and how now he's kind of he's still nervous but he pushes himself to to walk out onto it anyway because I've I've done it It, you know I know that I can do it but that doesn't mean you're not scared of it still it Mm. just shows that you've grown as a person and you've learned how to to move on
1: yeah yeah I love that you've seen that in it because that was totally the intention and there's another little bit in the um, forest when he's first trying to learn how to be a whisperer And he gets on the rope swing. I don't know if you remember it from from the year before. And everything seems smaller now. Yes. And it's it's a case of, is it less scary? Has he grown? Yes, he has, actually. Not just physically. He's grown in other ways. and His perspective has changed. And that's what he went into the forest to learn.
0: Yeah. And it's kind of, again, similarly, the swing is is almost another little throwaway that, again, it, it wouldn't necessarily affect the narrative of the story without
1: yeah, it it's but not important it, it's no character.
0: but it's an yes exactly it's another element demonstrating the the, the shift in his character and mm. obviously there's still elements that demonstrate the childishness of philo and uh, um his he's still got a long way to go in maturing but yeah. it's that like you say it's that bit where he's kind of like the rope doesn't seem quite so high and the tree seems that bit smaller and even the the stick they sit on doesn't seem quite as big as it once was and yeah the drop that yeah. he swings out over yeah isn't, it's like not scary anymore. isn't quite as big a drop yeah. as it was before yeah and it's it's like you say it's that move from being out and out terrified as a child to accepting his fear but knowing that you can still learn a lot from embracing it and facing that fear yeah that's clearly sort of shown me that that's something that's going to develop through the remaining books in the series that Mm. because we've obviously seen that shift where in book one he was utterly just desperate to get the confection right Mm. and he was distraught when it didn't work
1: understandably
0: yeah. because he thought that was the end of the road for him and worse for his family yeah that's all he knew and then when he had to go and try the trapeze and he knew he was deathly afraid of heights and he was like i can't do this i'm i'm he was almost adamant he was going to fail before it started yeah and maybe on paper it's not a success in the obvious sense but the success is the growth he experienced through it that yeah it showed him he might be scared but he can do it and that yeah. only continues into book two where he fear rears really its head again for him but yeah. he more quickly adapts to that fear but at the same time there's still those elements of desperation like yeah. where he's got to put together his little shrine and he's got to yes. collect the various components for it and he's told by the tamer they can't just be any old bits you pick up they have to have yeah, got to mean something. a meaning and a feeling yeah. and a connection and you see that that kernel of desperation come through again when it's getting closer to the point he needs this shrine done. He, his time yeah. is running out for it. And he's like, oh, oh, my God, nothing's spoken to me. There's nothing that's connecting. And you can almost see him desperately going, well, there's a pebble on the floor. Does that say anything? What about this? He's looking yeah. for it. And it's yeah. not until he almost accepts the defeat and relaxes he's almost like well there's nothing I can do if I can't do it I failed that actually there's that moment of clarity that forcing it isn't going to work yeah it's really interesting to see that you haven't removed all these fears and the desperate edge to him but it's kind of shifted and that he's learning from it with each each iteration yeah
1: oh my god I love how you've seen it all that's just it's, it's so fantastic for me to hear you say what I was thinking when I was writing it it's really amazing oh I, good I day think it's good day in all the
0: world kind, I would say it's kind of um, helped because I know from sort of speaking to you in the past that we share similar interests in some of our reading for example we obviously mentioned Potter and mm. there's Terry Pratchett and the Disc World yeah. yeah. which is also yeah, that awesome. kind of I mean I'm a real late to Pratchett I only started reading his books in probably easily within the last 10 years yeah um, if yeah. not less and that's another series that I always wrote off because I was like oh, it's, it's kids books yeah well
1: but, there is a kids ones but the, the disc world is, is not that at all I don't think
0: exactly but I, I kind of just did that usual like it's fantasy but it's not Tolkien fantasy it's not high yeah. fantasy it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. witches and wizards and goblins and trolls and it's it's the stuff of tales you tell your kids before bed so i mm. kind of just was rather dismissive of it and then i was like right I, i'm gonna try it see what what the deal is and there's uh to to a much greater extent i mean he he's one of the greats he's got that ability that there's a lot going on between the lines the mm means that an adult reads them and you enjoy them and there are a lot of adults only references as such in there that yeah. are so well written that yeah even the most worldly wise child probably won't pick them up
1: yeah but,
0: so an adult reading it you're sat there going oh, i i can see what you've done here i i yeah. get what you're referring to and i think that kind of that background kind of shows because you've kind of done that with, with Philo to a, to a different extent, you've made it accessible for children. It's not so dark and so complex that a child wouldn't enjoy it. Um, Mm. There are the darker elements. There is the death of the mother, the crow man, there's fear, there's, there's all of that, which isn't a pleasant vibe for a child, but it's not well upon so long that they're Mm. not onto the next happy, jolly, Fantastically yeah. wonderful bit that they'll forget all about that, but for yeah, an adult, yeah. it just builds that richness and depth.
1: I think it's a bit like um, with Potter, where there are little references in Potter where, as a child, you might not notice it, but as an adult reading it, you you it, it brings a little smile to you. So it's you know when um, they're talking about the Dementors, for instance, and the, you know you know a Dementor. You know, it's very easy to just think of that as that monster now in in your head. But if you actually think about the word and what that means, like somebody who's dementing you, making you demented. And the answer to that is that you eat some chocolate. And I just think that's hilarious. You know, when you look back at it and you think, oh, fantastic. Oh, I don't know if you're going to have a bar of chocolate. You know, it's got that kind of adult Separated from that, you know, I can almost imagine, you know, J.K. Rowling sitting at a desk laughing to herself, but they go, Yeah, that's the solution, have some chocolate, and everything's all right,
0: you know. Yeah. And I yeah. really like that. There's a
1: lot of references like that in the potter,
0: and I agree with you because I kind of read in those books, and and when you, you hit on the dementor, I almost sort of saw them as I guess they're a tormentor, aren't they? Because they prey on yeah. your fears
1: making you
0: demented oh my god exactly and it's like you say it's like that the early stage where you first see particularly with neville who who's just that bundle of abject fear when he sees Mm. it appear even though i think wasn't it i think it was his grandmother wasn't it it was was, he was most afraid of.
1: it's snape with his grandmother's
0: um yeah but initially and and he had to kind of Turn oh, his Oh no, that's, when it's, that's into,
1: the bogger. Sorry, I'm. Confusing that's you. it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. kind of they use the bogger to do what the dementors do. Yeah, uh, yes, kind of yes for Turn them into something else, and it's like it is that idea of like that shift from the child mentality of you don't know how to deal with your fear to that more grown up vibe of like embrace it and kind of I don't not not mock it, but you know, you kind of yeah well it is totally it that to isn't it
1: yeah i mean we've so like shifted with ron's
0: from... ron spider on the the yeah, yeah. The, the roller skates putting it on yeah, the roller yeah, yeah. skates suddenly just made it laughable
1: yeah because so we've shifted from the dementor into the bogger, which is preying on your fears isn't it so mm. and obviously there we are again so the, the spell to get rid of it is ridiculous you're ridiculous you know,
0: great, brilliant, love it. Uh, and I know. think that's something that you, you've kind of done well, maybe not to the same extent, because although obviously the Circus of Wonder is is magical, it's mm. not witches and wizards and casting spells and wands magical. It's it's more, it's augmented with, with wonder is kind of the way yeah. I see it, rather than out and out magic in yeah, the Sense. It's
1: quite challenging actually the magic in Circus of Wonder because as you say there are no wands and spells in that way so i needed to come up with a way of putting magic into each act and it had to be their own kind of individual magic so with the flyers the trapeze um you know people they've got their sash which holds their you know that's their that's their magical item and in um magician's secret he's got his ring which is the you know the source of his, of his power, which he's twiddling it and he's got some mm, hand motions and things to go with it. So it's coming up with something which works, you know, for each individual talent, obviously with the confections that you're getting getting magic to put into the into the recipes. And, you know, it's finding something each time that's different. Um, which is really it's really fun, you know, trying to trying to find that. You know, Philo finds his magical artifact in the um, magical menagerie as well which we don't need to say what it is but he does and finds his thing there again so yeah it's going forward what's he going to find next
0: and that that's kind of something that I really enjoy in the book because I often find like I'm not sure I could write a book in a magic world because it's another thing you have to create. And obviously writing mm. is all about creating. You have to create a world. And yeah. I remember when I set out writing um, and, and I spoke to to Richard D, who I've mentioned before, who's been a, a huge help over the, the time I've been writing. He said, you kind of need to start, that world you build could be as something as small as a, a room. Mm. And then you build the rooms off of that room and then you build the building those rooms are in and then you build the street that building's on and it expands mm. you know mm. when when people say world building they assume you have to build an entire planet and populate it from the word go when really yeah. you it can be as much as starting from just one room and yeah I, I mean i which which kind of made me think of the the ryan reynolds film i think it's buried you know i mean that that's mm. a it's a essentially it's um He's buried alive in in a Mm. wooden box, and the whole film is just one camera in this box, and he's in the box. God, and it's about how he's trying to find ways of getting out of it. And if I remember, you don't fully know if he ever got out. Right, but somehow they've built a world in a darkened wooden box. Mm. So you know, world building isn't necessarily this huge thing, but you know, you have to do that, and then you have to develop characters. And that's not no. just building your core character, who has to be really developed and rounded and realised. It's all the little people, even that random person in the street that you bump into. Are they the sort that goes, yeah. "Oh, my apologies, sorry, sir," or are they, "Watch where you're walking"? You know, you yeah. have to build that. Yeah. Even that minor detail. throw in magic and fantasy that's just something else because it's
1: another layer yeah you
0: know it's it's one thing to sit there and go okay wands potions spells done is it those is it um is it something like that like in in um harry potter is it something like in the disc world where it's you're kind of born into it but you go to university Mm. or is it to an extent star wars where It's an inherent thing. Some people have the force, others don't, because that's, to all intents and purposes, a form of magic.
1: They all have their own
0: rules and structures. And you've kind of gone down a route which is really interesting because it's not out and out, someone wiggles their fingers and something happens and that's it. It's more an augmentation. And as you say, I think the magician is probably the closest so far that I've seen to out and out magic but even hmm. then but
1: he's it's very specific of... he's only able to do very certain things
0: exactly it's only yeah. very slight things and much of what he does is still traditional sleight of hand misdirection yes. stuff
1: yeah he's a bit um, of a rogue <laughs>
0: yeah fantastic he's such a fun character but at the same time you really want to hate the guy
1: um, oh, really? Did you just, just, just for the I really trouble that he him.
0: creates he's it's kind of a mixed lovably hateable in that sense that you're like you're just it's the fact that he's not just causing trouble for himself like mm. we saw in the earlier books with addiction and that only really yeah. presented a problem for the person it affected
1: yeah
0: this the magician is causing problems on a wider scale yes um, yes already um, yes but mm-hmm. but even then it's as you say, it's not full blown magic. So kind of, how did you arrive at the decision to go down the route you've gone that's almost magical augmentation rather than out and out spells and wands and all of that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, how did I? Why did I do that to myself? Um, I suppose it's it's born of that circus experience you know if, if you go and visit a circus um you are amazed by what they are able to achieve and the their magic kind of almost bounces off the crowd you know the more you are ah, the more you are taken in by what they are doing it kind of magnifies everything and I felt like each act had its own special thing about it that it was able to do and therefore nobody was waving a wand anyway and you can't see that in the circus performance so how are they doing it what's what's the what's the secret what's happening you know behind the scenes that they're able to you know create this atmosphere and you know fill the crowd with you know fear or amazement you know or delight or whatever it is how are they doing it so i I felt like they all needed to be different. There was something else happening each time. And I really liked with the confectionery as well, that idea that, you know, a smell reminds you of something so forcefully. You know, I'm sure that you've smelled a smell and, and thought of a person or a moment in time or somebody's given you your favourite dinner from childhood, you know, and it could be something crazy like fish fingers, you know, which is not, a, a you know, an amazing culinary experience but it might take you right back to grandma's you know and you may as well be sitting at her table you know having your cherryade and have you, do you know what i mean it's got that there's there's magic in all sorts of things and magic in our experiences of life around us all the time but you just have to recognize where it is and i think that's that's philo's magic that he's that he's finding it around him
0: that's really interesting because that kind of plays onto the idea of like i guess you know you you see a street magician do a card trick or something and we know there's a rational explanation behind how they've done it Mm. but it still amazes you because you can't work it out
1: you don't know what it is yeah
0: to an extent i kind of get that with philo ken although i know the way you've written it is that there there is an undercurrent of magic of some sort. real magic yeah it yeah. kind of just plays on that idea. And it's kind of like I saw Penn and Teller a few years ago live, and they made no mm. bones about saying to you from the, the minute they walked out, they were like, first thing we're going to tell you is magic is not real. Everything oh, we do right. has an explanation, but we're not going to give you it. And mm. then they go, they do all these things. And even at times they will tell you how they're doing it, but you're still going, I, I don't. Yeah. I can't see how you've done that.
1: Yeah, Even but isn't magic doing something that somebody else doesn't know how to do? Isn't that
0: magic? Yeah, and essentially that is the narrative arc they came to, that actually magic isn't real in the sense that it is not this, this power that someone has in their fingers or in the end of a wooden stick or any of that. Mm. Magic is in being amazed by something that you know is entirely explainable, but you can't explain. Mm. and i was like that's a really interesting outlook and i guess to a degree you've you've played on that in Philocaine. Mm-hmm. um yeah what with the but but with the augmentation of magic um but i kind of just want to touch on one more element of Philocaine before we we wrap up here today yeah and it, it's kind of a part that would be a bit remiss of me to to not touch on given my my writing as well Mm. and it's that there's a a very obvious steampunk element in there um, whether it be in book one when they're in in the big city and there's the blimps and the airships Mm. or the machine in in and of itself at the heart of the the thing so was that an intentional decision again on your part or was that just something that that grew as the story grew
1: I love steampunk steampunk is just such a fantastic visual element on its own and if you start getting into um, the idea of things being powered in an alternative way and there being alternative technologies I think that that just feels magical I don't know whether steampunk's meant to be necessarily magical but to me it feels like that is a magic and I love the idea of um the contraptions, and in the second book, there's the contraptionist and I don't know how steampunky you felt he was um but that was definitely my intention for him. you know I wanted that that he was creating these machines, which were there really for to create joy, you know, but they're so unusual, and the the heart of the Circus of Wonder is the steampunk machine. You know, that is what is there. And I, and I wanted to feel that in the visuals of it as well, that, that you could imagine that there are copper pipes and rivets and, you know, all the cabins will collapse, you know, for travelling and there's, there's clever machinery behind all of it. You know, and I just really love that kind of aesthetic, I suppose. And the airships, I mean, you know, there is an airship that keeps appearing. It will keep appearing. There are more airships that are gonna be in this next story that I'm writing. So yeah, we're gonna be seeing a lot more of that. And that's a bit of a challenge for me as well at the moment because Philo exists in the real world. So in my world, Philo, is he is a contemporary thing. Sometimes they visit what I call ordinary towns and sometimes they only go to charmed locations. And sometimes it's a bit of a mixture of the two and they have to be a bit careful about how much magic they're displaying. Um, which kind of leans back to that other thing where we're talking about the magic. About is it magic or oh, are just really good magic do how it? Anymore. So that's that you know that element. But because I'm getting into you know um, airships and what have you now, how do you hide them from normal people? I mean, imagine if you looked out your window and you saw you know a steampunk airship going along. What I mean, that how how do you deal with that? So I need to find a way that that that's going to be. You know, under the radar, they need to have a sort of a cloaking device to kind of keep them separate. Um, so it's yeah, it's a really interesting challenge that I got to work out for the next story because there's going to be a lot more of that. And the next that's story is called the Clockwork Cabaret as well. So that's you know, there's a lot. And there's going to be a lot of steampunk element in that.
0: And as soon as I saw that title, my mind immediately thought that's rife for more steampunk.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: In <it." laughs> So I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. So I think yeah. with the final few minutes here, I think the obvious place finish would just be to briefly touch upon uh, the clockwork cabaret and what's what's next for Philo Kane without giving too much away.
1: Yeah. Well, I am um, I am still working on the fine details of the plot. Um, but I do have the broad strokes of it. Um but I think it's Safe to say that Philo has exhausted his potential for um, apprenticeships, actually, in the Circus of Wonder. So he's now going to have to go outside of his home turf to try to learn a skill that he can um, you know, bring home with him. Um, so the Clockwork Cabaret is actually, um, he's going to go and stay with relatives there. That's his inn. So he's got relatives that are allowing him to, to get in there. And I don't know I don't want to say too much about the story to be honest but um, the, the Clockwork Cabaret is based upon um, I think they're called Spiegel tents I'm trying to remember now which are something from the 1920s which is a collapsible dance hall essentially which um, you, can, you can google them up and they're amazing sort of art nouveau um, you know almost like a big top but they're solid so they've got windows and they've got wooden dance walls and everything but they just pack down into nothing and then they drive away with them so it's that kind of idea so the clockwork cabaret have to travel by road not like the Circus of Wonder who has this marvellous machine which allows them to kind of disappear and reappear somewhere else so this is going to be a much more perilous journey for with because he's on the road with the cabaret which puts him in danger of um those robes of the in-between who I've alluded to in the past, but we haven't really seen very much of them. But yeah, so it's going to be, it's going to be a bit more of a dangerous um, journey for him this time.
0: That sounds brilliant. I'm really looking forward to that. So with that, I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. So I just want to say thank you again for taking the time for talking with me today.
1: Thank you. It's been really nice to chat. We've, we've spoken a lot online, but it's nice to actually um, do something in person. So it's been lovely. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Shard Hutton for joining me on today's episode of the Crow's Nest podcast. If you've enjoyed this show... Please like, subscribe and leave a rating wherever you download your podcast from.